I say we'll find out if it will. (laughs) (laughs) This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, a professor, and someone who occasionally enjoys reading news on the internet. Who are you, Bob? I am your old friend from graduate school from way back when. The the longer we do this together, the longer ago that was, which, you know. Yeah, let's count the years. How come come you don't have any gray hair and me, um, you know, moving along here? You don't have that many gray hairs. I was told I have 25% gray. Well, it's sort of like if you just, the gestalt of your head is it's not gray. But if I look real close, you have that, you know, distinguished dusting, especially on the sides, on the temples. I have distinguished dusting. (laughs) (laughs) And to be clear, I do have some gray hair. It's, um, you have to search for it, but. Yeah, I think it's framed in a picture on your wall. Being being Japanese, because my dad, I think, you know, he's in his mid seventies. I think he's, he's mostly not gray, you know? So yeah. I think it's a Japanese thing. You guys age well. Yeah. In your family. Yeah. Well, um, I'm your friend from graduate school and a therapist in practice here in Seattle. Having no, like that total seeming absence of gray hair is kind of a problem though, because people that know who know how old I am, 48, they're like, well, obviously he dyes his hair. And I don't want people to think that. Yeah. I don't want people to think I, I'm dying my hair. Yeah. So it's like on some level, I kind of wish I had, I don't know, 5% gray. So people would go like, oh, you know. You might have to dye your hair a little gray. Yeah. I thought about, you know, graying out a couple or just taking my white cat hairs and just, <laughs> they're probably in there. That's probably what I'm seeing. I probably have no gray hair. So this, this, these are all psychotherapy related uh, uh, articles I found just Googling psychotherapy news on Google. Uh, this is a article written by Catherine Schaefer, a New York City-based psychotherapist. Five signs of a bad listener. Oh. Number one, they judge. The classic example of judging is any version of, what were you thinking? The runner-up example is, why wouldn't you just dot, dot, dot? What do you think, Bob? Oh, yeah, I, I agree with that characterization of judgment. I, I would like to point out the following, though. My wife has had really shitty bosses. And when she comes home and she tells me stories about how shitty they are, I judge the crap out of them because not it's not the Bob show, and I don't put the spotlight on me, but it's a way to validate her crappy experience by not being a fucking therapist and saying, what an asshole. Well, I think therapists can absolutely say that. It's an yeah. authentic, validating response. But you're talking about judging who they're complaining about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're not talking about judging who's talking to us. Yeah, that's bad. You wouldn't say to Colleen, well, why don't you just quit? Or, you know, why would you let that get under your skin? What's wrong with you? It would be nice if that were exclusively true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, do you think that therapists like us who, especially you, because you're practicing Monday through Friday, right? Well, yeah. Ish. Yeah. More than I am. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't, I, I don't currently because of the podcast and Antioch, I probably only see like four or five clients a week yeah. at max. Uh-huh. And it's only on Mondays. Right. Um, so for us there, for therapists who work more on me, I guess in the past, yeah. do you think that because we are so hard at work listening well and not, inserting our personalities or our needs where uh, 
combating different impulses to not listen well or to judge or to say, uh, I don't know, yeah, enough is enough or so. Do you think that it's harder for us to listen to our spouses uh, at night? It is at times. At times I come home and I don't want to talk to anybody or listen to a damn thing because I'm just tired. Yeah. And I think there's this other thing that happens is sometimes she's frustrated with me and she says, stop being my damn therapist. Because, you know, my brain's in a certain mode all day. And um, sometimes even when things are... Sometimes I run... I feel like I run the risk of um, alienating her when I notice something about um, how she's behaving that looks like it causes her suffering. And I don't want to, like just put on a therapist hat and, you know, go to work on the one hand, but on the other hand, I love her and I care for her. And when she is suffering, I, I want to, if I can be of some use and some help to her. And the other day we had this moment and I, I felt the risk inside my heart, you know, like, okay, what do you want to do here? And I took a chance and did this thing. And, um, it, I was lucky this time. It led to a really a lovely moment of connection. Hmm. It was nice. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I think it's great for listeners to hear that us therapists are human too and suffer from the same, I don't know, ups and downs of our ability to listen and care and create positive, healthy interactions. It's a constant struggle. It's work. Yeah, it is work. Yeah. I imagine though, even if I didn't do this for a living, having authentic uh, connection with people would be still be work for me. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, okay. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. So I think therapists can get burnt out. I think yeah. that's, that's what we're saying. Number two is bad listeners. They minimize, uh, for example, mm-hmm. come on, it couldn't have been that bad. You're making it sound worse than it was. It was just a joke. Take it easy. Uh, what do you think about that, Bob? Yeah, I, I, I agree with her. That is crappy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, where do you think that comes from? Like, oh, what? I think that's people offloading the responsibility for their own uncomfortable emotions on the other. Ah. If I got to deal with you and when I deal with you, it raises tough emotion in me, then one of the ways I can deal with it is by um, making you too sensitive or too this or too the other or, you know, making a mountain out of molehill or whatever. And that gets me out of responsibility and the pain of my own emotional responses. Right. I, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. And to to be specific about the emotion that we're all I, I've I know people have said this before, so it's, I'm not inventing this, but I've come to adopt and hold the position that all of our defenses and bad behavior, so to speak, or unhealthy behavior, yeah, comes from a a place of fear or pain. Yeah. Right, we're yeah. either afraid of something. You can even argue we're right. afraid of pain in yeah. some ways. But uh, so when you know someone's listening to another person as they're complaining about work, a number of fears emerge in people, uh, or c- could emerge in people, uh, like what if my wife decides to quit her job, and then she's not working right. for a year? What if? she quits her job and realizes that big changes are good in her life and she decides to divorce me. Right. These are literal fears that people have. Yeah. Whether they can articulate them or not, 
I've seen it before. Sure. You know? And when you have a fear like that, you will try to manage that. And if you're not aware or you don't trust yourself or other people to express it or even identify it, right. you're just going to try to you know, triage the situation, which is like, keep this person at this job. Right. You know, and how do I do that? Well, I minimize their experience. It's right. not a big deal. Every job is hard. Bosses are, you know, right. every, you know, just let it go. Yeah. You know? And, you know, I've obviously done that myself and in my office with couples, you, you really see it happening. Um, and it, and it's an opportunity to kind of, okay, let's, let's pause here for a second. When she was complaining about work, what were you feeling? Right. Well, I don't know. I was just feeling nothing. Well, let's really think about it because it seems like maybe you had an emotion there. Well, um, I don't know. I'm just. I guess I'm just kind of bothered by the fact that she's uh, complaining about work. I guess. Well, tell me more. Why were you bothered? Well, I don't know. Um, it, it feels like she doesn't understand what how good of a situation she has or something. Okay, so tell me more. Like, yeah. you know, and then eventually, hopefully, you get to a place and maybe even have to say, is it possible you're afraid of something here? You know, if you're afraid of something, what would that be? And then you get at those feelings. And then right. it's like, oh, that's interesting. I'm a, that seems irrational. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, my wife complaining about her job uh, it triggers this fear that she's going to divorce me. Right. Which happens to a lot of people who oh, yeah. have relational traumas, particularly. Yeah. Um, because they actually, people with relational traumas, that literally might have happened to them in their life where they had someone who quit their job and then abandoned them. Right. You know? So, anyway. Uh, number three, they discount feelings. For example, there are, so there are so many less fortunate people than us in the world. We should just be grateful for our health and all the opportunities around us. Is this a sign of a bad listener, Bob? Oh, yeah. I think it's exactly what you just said about how people try to offload um, their own pain by, you know, it's a strategy. Right. And often that takes place just automatically, you know, maybe outside awareness, if that's a way to put it. Yeah. But they just, we just are pain phobic. And so we don't want to have pain. So it's just a way to, it's a way to not have it. Yeah. I also see this one emerging among liberals and lefties and Seattleites and white people because the first world problems meme, you know? Oh, I hate that. You know, like if you live in the first world, what other fucking problems are you going to have? Yeah. I mean, there's some legitimacy to it under okay. yeah. rare circumstances. Like, um, you know, like you crack the glass on your phone. Right. And you have a six figure job. Yeah. And you're just, and it ruins your day. And maybe in your head, you're just like, there are people in the world who can't eat. Yeah. I think I should put that, I should put this in perspective. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to get another phone and, you know, yeah. I, my retirement fund is slowly accumulating anyway. Yeah. Like everything's, I need to like realize yeah. this is not the end of the world. That kind of disproportionate uh, recognition of a disproportionate response is soothing to the person having the response. Right. I think that's probably its best use, but people use it against other people. Yeah. I mean, unless you think they're going to respond well to it, you know, which seems not likely, but yeah, exactly. But I mean, if you have like, if you have an agreement with a good, a close person to you that occasionally you, you just try to remind each other yeah. that great to be grateful of life right. is actually a wonderful thing. But having said that most of the time I'll hear people, 
uh, it's it's usually younger white people. They'll talk about how um, you know they feel horrible. They're depressed. They're demoralized. They're lonely. They feel like there's no meaning in their life. Their you know partner just left them or something, and they'll say, "Well, you know, first world problems." Yeah. And, They'll just discount and minimize oh. their, their entire experience. And, and it's like, um, uh, you know, there's no way to um, – we don't think that our – we don't exist that way as humans. We don't – as we're experiencing pain, like to get concrete, like I stubbed my toe uh, earlier today. Oh, yeah. In the bathroom. I like just kicked – the um the corner um in my bathroom just Ugh. hard right uh-huh. it was extremely painful and i in that moment you know if i could just have like i don't know cut off my foot to save myself from the pain i probably would have <laughs> um and if you would have come to me in that moment and said like how are you doing i'd be like i am in utter pain right now right i, I wish i didn't have a foot at this right. point you know but relatively, in the world, at that very moment, there were people in more pain than me. Oh, of course. And for longer periods of time. And there are people who don't even have a foot, literally, right? Or people who are dead or people who are dying. You know, there's, there's, there's horrible, oh, horrible yeah. relative things to, my, to me stubbing my toe. But that doesn't mean I'm not in pain. That no. doesn't – my brain doesn't – my brain as the pain – just overwhelming pain signals are going to my brain. There's not a section of my brain that like checks the internet on the index of pain and says, well, actually you're, you're, you're doing okay. There's no, we're not like that. We don't, we don't pull relative pain in the world and say, well, you know, we just, our, our physical bodies experience the pain. And when you are going through a divorce, when you are uh, fired from your job, when you are treated badly, or you're, when you're lonely and your life has emptiness and you can't find meaning. Right. Your brain actually experiences a pain response to that. It's not a, a depending on the situation, but sure. the way we're describing it, you, you, your brain is actually experiencing a physical pain response. Now, you might not feel a sharp pain in your body. Sometimes sure. you do. Like you'll, hear, you'll feel it in your chest, chest or your gut or something. Yeah. But it's a, a malaise that takes over. That's why cutting works is because when you cut, um, it, it releases endorphins, which solves the pain of the cutting, but it also solves the pain of, of the, of the psychic relational pain. psychic pain, right? Yeah. Um, similar to the, why, the reason why opiates are such a problem oh, right. in our society yeah. because there are people walking around from a lifetime of pain psychically and they go, they get their wisdom teeth pulled and they take a Percocet, uh, pulled, did I say? They get their wisdom, wisdom teeth, teeth pulled. pulled. Yeah. Um, and they get prescribed a Percocet. They take the Percocet and for the first time in their lives, they don't feel that psychic pain anymore. Yeah. And they think, wow, opiates are, I need these. Like, pretty attractive. Yeah, I can't, I can't. And you can even go to therapy which is the route to go to actually heal the pain in a healthy way. But it might take 10, 15 years to heal that pain or longer or just reduce it. So there are people walking around with psychic pain who, you know, 
it's a logical choice to become addicted yeah. to to opiates, and then eventually you run run out of money and you you go to heroin, and that's the situation. Right, mm-hmm. and I find that a lot of people don't talk about that. You know, they're just yeah. like we have an opiate epidemic and or a meth epidemic, and I, I feel like people talk about it like, well, there's just a bunch of junkies, yeah. you know, people born with addiction problems or people who are just kind of um, deadbeat people, yeah. you know, right? they're just losers. Right. And having worked at a addiction treatment center and focusing a lot on opiate addiction, I found mm-hmm. that opiate addicts, at least in Seattle, are in my anecdotal experience, successful individuals. These oh, yeah. are people who have good jobs, work right. in the tech industry, they're young, right. have, you know, good lives and uh, find opiates to be like the perfect therapy for them. Yeah. You know, it's, it's worth the price to them. Right. Um, so stop discounting people's feelings and your own feelings. Yeah. Well, when we do that, you know, like someone's talking to you, right. And they say, you know, this, that, or the other, I'm in this kind of pain and I'm lonely and my life has no meaning. And, you know, and then they sheepishly say, you know, first world problems. I think one of the things that they're doing is expressing shame and a fear that you will have a judgment of them. Um, or a fear that, that um, you know, because that's a vulnerable thing to do is to share your pain with somebody. And nobody lies about that stuff. At least that's not been my experience that they lie about it. Yet it is a vulnerable thing to reveal. And I just put my goodies in the hands of my audience. You know, hopefully I have a kind audience. But if I, if I'm, if I suspect I don't or have had the experience of not having a kind audience, then I might say something like first world problems to kind of, ha ha, let's just dismiss me because it's safer. Right. But maybe the truth is I'm ashamed. And not trusting that the other person yeah. is going to really value it. And right. actually, I, that's an interesting point. I, If I think about it off the top of my head, I think actually almost everyone is like that. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, universal. Yeah, I almost agree. everyone is like uh, shameful mm-hmm. and or discounting of their own feelings, yeah. you know? They're lonely. They're sad. They're um, they they have needs, and they're just like, well, I, you know, I just need to get over it. I need to let it go. And yeah, the one phrase that um, always aggravates me and pains me for people's sake is when they say the phrase "let it go." Oh, let yeah. it go, let it go. And I mean, I guess it's not universal, but. I'll be talking with a client or yeah. just someone about something along these lines and they'll just be like, so I, I guess I just need to just let it go. Yeah. And usually what that means is I need to get over it or they'll say that yeah. I need to get over it. Yeah. Meaning that it's, it's a choice. You could just say, I'm just going to let this go. Yeah. Like as if, as if you have a choice. Like, what is that? I don't even know what that phrase means. Yeah. But it's so pervasive in our oh, culture. Oh, it's everywhere. And let it's it supposed to be like good thing, right? Oh, yeah. I let it go. You know, look at me. I let it go. Yeah. What the fuck? What the fuck does that even mean? Well, again, I think there are some rare circumstances like when you are on the road, for example. Right. And you come to a stop sign and someone skips your turn and goes first. Right. You can you could say ah, I'm going to let that go. Like, sure. What am I going to do? Uh, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. I could get worked up about it. I'm going to let it go. Yeah. But a lot of times, it's like, yeah, I 
my mother died and I, I'm having a hard time working and I'm, I'm in a really bad mood all the time. Right. And I'm thinking about her all the time. And, and it's been three whole weeks since she died. Yeah. Right. I need to let it go. Yeah. Right. And it's like, no, like one, you can't, that's yeah. not physically possible. And two, why, you know, like, yeah, where's that written? Yeah. Number four, they give advice. For example, Oh, well, have you thought about doing X? You know, what I do is why uh, then, then you can just do Z. I'm not really understanding what that's saying, but yeah, people giving advice. Yeah. Is that a bad listening habit? That's like a radio call-in show, you know, fast food kind of thing. And I think it does the same thing, is if I give you advice, I have done something for you, I have um, eliminated your need to have pain whatsoever, and you just get on and do with it. And if you don't take my advice, well, then you're kind of an idiot. Right. Because you didn't take my good advice. And really, can I sit? Here's a hard thing to do. And I, I think it's hard. It's hard for me to do it. I think it's probably hard for most people is, can I sit with you? When you're in pain, not offer a solution except to recognize that my presence and my attention are probably enough. And all. Like, yeah. the bid often is for someone to do that. Yeah. To be with you and yeah. to hear you. Right. And we could all do better as listeners to, to know that. Right. But we could also do better as speakers to to tell people what we need. You know, like yeah. you come home from work and you're upset about your boss, and you start talking to your spouse, and you're, right. and you could lead with, because I'll do this sometimes. Yeah. I'll just be like, I just need to vent. You know, I'll just I'll just say that from the start. It's like, so I just I just need to download what's in my head to you right now. Yeah, and it just gives a cue to the other person of like, yeah. oh. I don't need to figure out a solution here. Right. This person isn't thinking about a solution. Right. They just, they want someone to understand and to hear them. And it, I find that it often works. Right. But of course, as listeners too. And I, I've had, I've actually had therapists who have done this to me and experienced it firsthand and disliked it. Like I'll be talking about, you know, one of the things that bothers me and the therapist will enter this mode of like, well, why don't you try this? Or yeah. why don't you try that? Yeah. And of course that can be helpful kind it, of it sometimes. Can. But in general, unless you're really sure that it's a, gr- a good thing and you've already spent a good amount of time listening, listening. And, and validating and being with someone right. in, in their situation. Um, yeah, it's often it's often really off-putting. Like there's, oh, yeah. there's only a few things I've experienced as a client that have been seriously off-putting and that's one of them. Yeah. Just, it, it feels like the listener is simplifying the situation. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. And as soon as they say it, as you were pointing out, it sort of puts pressure on me to, to take that action, yeah. you know? And it's easier for them to say. Oh, easy to say. Yeah. And and then for me, I'm like, well, yeah. there's a lot of problems. Like, uh, you're right, right. That's what I should do. In a way, maybe. But there's so many different challenges that I have to face with that implication, you know, that, um, and, you know, I experience this with my supervisees and, and other therapists, they have this notion that therapy is skill-based and there's this, there's a movement and there's a whole section of our industry that's ever growing, by the way, 
that considers therapy to be a skill teaching. I mean, you teach DBT skills. Well, yeah. Which is, that's what it's designed to do. Yeah. I don't actually think teaching the skills is the most important part of my job anymore, though. Oh, really? Yeah, I think my the most important part of my job is to make my class a safe place so that people feel a sense of belonging and insiderness and a community so that they can talk about the things that they do to help themselves get down the road. You know, we teach the skills, and it, I'd st- I have to do that. But honest to God, I think that's only 45% of what's important about what goes on in that room. Interesting. And I've, I've just come to that in the last two years. It's taken me t- almost 20 years to understand that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I mean... <laughs> I don't know if uh, we've talked about this before, but uh, I think like, what was it like, I don't know, eight years ago would have been, you told me that it was unethical to to do. Oh, yeah. You told me like you were, you said, I think you said the phrase, it's unethical not to use an evidence-based practice. At, I, I didn't say that. That's not oh, what I said. Oh, what did you say? <laughs> we were talking about OCD. Yeah. And I said, there's so much history and research on this disorder that it's almost unethical to use anything but prolonged exposure and meds to treat it. And it was very specific to OCD. Well, I remember that. Uh, So, but I remember... Oh, wait, did I make a more general statement at another time about uh, evidence-based... Oh, God. You came to my class. Remember you came to my class? Yeah, no, that's the day I said the thing about the OCD. But... I, re- been a time- I rewrote that story in my head. That's okay. There's been a time in my head when I have pull up my butt thinking evidence-based treatment has to be blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And the skills-based thing. Now, one of the things I've learned about um, therapist development is the first five years are spent in developing a kind of a set of skills. Like mm. that's just, uh, I think, a developmental, you know, something that just happens. Meaning like listening skills and yeah. diagnosing skills yeah. and ethics skills. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Just like beginner skills you know yeah. like just like anything just yeah. like learning totally. Anything. totally so you know you know you learn how to play your scales if you're a musician and then uh having done that you learn how to you you have the 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 uh um what do you call it? foundation for you know improvise yeah ultimately i like that yeah yeah i find that to be true about me yeah i it coincides with another thing that I found to be true that was told to me in graduate school. I don't know if you remember hearing this or you heard from the same people that it takes five years to feel like you kind of know what you're doing. Yeah, I remember. Um, and when I heard that in graduate school, I thought that was ridiculous because I thought <laughs> if I, I, I would like to think after a couple years yeah. of day in and day out full-time work that right. I would... I would feel confident, you yeah. know, why would it take five years? Five years. Because at the time I was, you know, 24 yeah. and I'm thinking the longest job I've ever had was nine months. And, you know, after a month, I felt like I was pretty good at it. <laughs> why would it take five years? And lo and behold, you know, about five years in, I remember where I was. I was driving in Renton and I was in my car and I, and I just had this, because, you know, when especially I think when you're starting out, you just kind of think like, well, I guess I, I still do this now, but I did it particularly when I was younger. Mm-hmm. At the end of my day, I would think, was I a good therapist today? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I would think, uh, and I would think, yeah, I was with seven of my sessions, I feel like I nailed it as good as one could. And mm-hmm. maybe even a couple, I really shined. Mm-hmm. And maybe one, like I was tired or lazy or just didn't click with that person at that yeah. moment. So a part of that would be a kind of just mental inventory of how do I feel about 
myself as a therapist. And I remember at, a, at the five, I was just driving in my car and I was just like, wait, I think I've been a good therapist for a, a good amount of time now. And I have no doubt that I'm going to be a good therapist tomorrow. Oh, nice. You know what I mean? That, that, I, that sentence didn't pass through my head, but it was something along those lines, that like, sort of that yeah. feeling. And I thought, I've never had this feeling before. Oh, nice. You know, prior to that, it was like, you know, I have some confidence for sure, but I have no, I have no ability to predict the future about if I'm going to do well. I don't have a sense of like even what I'm doing from moment to moment. I don't have a con- conceptualization or a trust of right. the process or something. Right. And yeah, and five years in, so is what you're saying is like the first five years, you're 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 trying to learn your scales. Right. And then it becomes automatic, and then you can start improvising beyond that. I, I like that, and I think that's really true. Yeah. Because a lot of, and I think it's a good message to tell novice therapists because yes. they often feel, they look at us and they're like, how do you do it, you know? Yeah. And what's wrong with me oh, yeah. that I feel so, um, I don't know, unaware of what to do from sure. moment to moment. Yeah. You, you just seem to have this ability to pull stuff out, you know, theories and ideas and directions and i feel like they're not they don't occur to me mm. when you know they'll they'll sit down they'll consult with me and i'll say well you know let's think about this let's think about that and they'll be like why didn't i think of that yeah and a message is like what you're saying of just like you're still learning your scales, scales. like at five years in you won't you know when charlie parker sits down with his saxophone he, he's not thinking a b you know c sharp he, he it's just flowing out of him yeah. you know it's just he, him and his saxophone or one right uh you know eddie van halen and the guitar eddie van halen is not thinking like okay pentatonic scale this and that you know he's just it just flows out of him and so it's the same thing with therapy i think i think that's i think that's good you ever notice that with the way you talk though like even as you're sitting here with me and we're talking about this thing you're not necessarily got in your head uh, a paragraph of words that you're going to say you have an intention and as you talk, you probably are hearing yourself say the thing for the first time yourself. Right. Almost like you're taking dictation from the gods or the universe or something. <laughs> because the, inf- the information or the attitude or the feeling of the thing is inside you, but the words, they just take a little longer. You are now fluent in the language of music. Without even having to think, you can utter the sentence that needs said. Yeah. And when you were two, you were learning how to say apple. Well, and also, I've talked about this on the podcast before, when I first started the podcast 10 years ago. Oh, right. And I had to talk about something. It was extremely stilted and stuttering and needed to be very prepared. And I would podcast in very bad ways and would have to edit very severely. I mean, in the first year... I remember, particularly in the first few months, I would edit eighty percent of the of the content out. Really? Yeah, I would only include like twenty percent. That's be- amazing. Be- and I had guests too. You know, I had Berto and Lita back then. Right. And we were all kind of bad. Yeah. You know, we because we just didn't have that. We were still learning our scales. Right. Now I press record. And people will email me. Someone just told me this the other day. He's like, I'm really impressed that you can just like talk and talk and talk and keep it interesting. Yeah. Now, God knows if it's actually interesting, but... <laughs> well, but, we know one person thought so. <laughs> yeah. 
But that's a skill that I that I did not have ten years ago. Yeah, like I've never been this eloquent. You know, I'm not super eloquent. But, oh, folks, but eloquent enough. Let's Kirk just, is good. I, I I was not. It's a skill, and yeah. I, and I think that ten years ago, if you would have asked me, yeah, could you learn this skill? I'd be like, no. There's yeah. there's something wrong with me, or I'm different. I could never do that thing that yeah. people people on the radio do. Right. In fact. At my uh, re- family reunion, 10 years ago, exactly, or no, that's 13 years ago, I, I think, I was planning it. I was, me and my dad were planning this big family reunion, and, and there's always a banquet and, you know, different performances, so to speak, on the stage. Of oh, different, cool. You know, you ask people to do different things. And they just turned to me and they said, well, Kirk, why don't you MC it? You know, why don't you introduce and get people up there and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, like one, no, that sounds terrifying to me. (laughs) Two, I wouldn't know what to say. And three, I've tried to do that before and words don't occur to me. I don't even know the landscape, you know, Uh like you would have to tell me beat for beat exactly what I'm supposed to say and have like a cue card sure, because it won't, it won't naturally just pop into my head. Right. And and I've seen other people with that skill. Like well, my cousin Lance. Yeah. He has that skill. He just he grabs a microphone. He you know, he just knows how to riff. And I'm not talking like you know, really good riffing like a stand-up comic, but just the ability to know the landscape like okay, this is the first time someone's talked on the microphone. There's three things that people are probably wanting to hear from me. They probably want to hear a welcome. They probably want to hear some thanks. They probably want to hear like a like a funny anecdote or something. Yeah, and then they want to move on to the next thing. Like p- there are certain people that just have that that just occur. They don't need to think about it. Yeah. Just boom yeah. enters their head, and and then they just they just do it. Well, for me, thirteen years ago, there was no way I would be I would have been able. Even though I was yeah. an instructor, by the way, and speaking yeah. basically in front of crowds professionally for a long time, but right. there's just something different about that when I have my notes in front of me. Yeah. Well, through this podcast, I have been forced to learn how to do that. And so now I can actually, for the first time in my life, this happened just just recently. Yeah. Just maybe in the past year or two, I feel like I can get up in front of a crowd and just riff like that, you know? With confidence that you'll say something that has some value, meaning, and interest. Right. Yeah. Or enough so that at least I'm tracking the situation, you know? Yeah. Like, we did some live events, some live podcast events. You were you were at, at the second one, the ten year one, yeah, You're, yeah. And that's all that that is. You know, yeah. I just have a general idea of what the next segment is about, and I have to speak in a way that sort of is appropriate to the situation. You know, yeah. And there is even five years ago, I wouldn't have been able to do that. And and it's not it's it's confidence, but it's also just neurons that are practiced yeah. enough at at being in that situation and therapy being a therapist is just like that. Yeah, it is. You know, a lot of novice therapists. So, you know, I teach a, a lab class called applied family therapy where they role play, you know, every, every time we meet, they role play family sessions and I observe them. And there are simple things that I've realized that all of us therapists have through experience just become rote. They just become habit, easy things that just come out of our mouths, like how to explain confidentiality, how to say hello when they walk in the door, right. how to ask someone what they want to do with today's sessions. Right. 
and I watch these people who have never done it before, and the words come out in the most clunky ways. Yeah. And I'm always like, why did you word it that way? Right. Why did you right. add all those sentences? to? It's just a simple question. Like, mm-hmm. what do you want to talk about today? Yeah. You know, they'll be like, so you came to session and... I am your therapist, so <laughs> there are things that one research shows, th- you know, goals, therapy, and <laughs> what, you know, and you're just like, my God, yeah. just say the goddamn sentence, you yeah. know, but they've <laughs> never said it before. Said it. The neurons aren't there, the, yeah. the scales haven't been memorized. Yeah. You know, when Charlie Parker f- first picked up the saxophone, he was probably awful. He didn't yeah. oh, no just doubt. launch into, you know, what yeah. he became. I don't know why I was going. Do you know who Charlie Parker is? Uh, jazz sax, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've just always loved Charlie Parker. Yeah. Yeah. I find that, you know, because people often go to Coltrane and you know, uh, these people. But I find Coltrane to be like too mathematical and dissonant you yeah know? Me too. which for the time i think that's what they were going for and certainly there's some great coltrane tracks but bird he he was big before jazz got weird and <laughs> so <laughs> i find his stuff to be really great i mean obviously cold coltrane's tone is amazing i mean he just has this just very distinctive like voice through the saxophone that's, oh god can you imagine there's no he there's no way to to teach that I mean, I don't think there is. Voice. No, that style of play, Coltrane style of play. I mean, can you imagine him? He started out learning scales. Right. Then he probably learned how to do... All the hits. Yeah. Yeah. And then somehow he morphed into this thing that he does or whatever. Well... Holy cow. Well, they've studied it. You know, University of Washington has a pretty big music department. Uh And they have a a very robust classical department. Right. And they're, they're, you know, they're... um, reject school as their jazz department you know like the classical people look down on jazz uh-huh. and the jazz people and and you know because i actually went through the music to, i took a lot of class when i got my degree at oh did you yeah i have sort of an unofficial minor in music i didn't know that yeah like i used all my electives for music and i saved all my electives for my last few quarters oh. so the last few quarters like all i took so i took classes in composition nice i took classes in uh, classical music i took classes in computer so computer music at the time this is 1991 92 yeah. i was programming in c plus how to make a waveform evolve over time it was very and and i the stuff i came up with was terrible cuz the sure. thing is is you had to program it and because computers were so slow at the time, you had to, you pressed run, you know, because you, you had, you essentially, you had to, through formula, and I'm not talking like play A, play B, you had to code for the waveform of an A note. Yeah. You know, that the A note waveform is a certain oscillation. You had to code for the oscillator, and then you had to code for the oscillator, the effects on an oscillator. Because if you just listen to an oscillator, it's just like, you know like you have like it doesn't sound good yeah so you have to have all these things anyway you would press run and and the next day you would come back and you'd get to hear what it what your program sounded like yeah and if there's anything wrong you had to tweak it again and then press run come back the next day but some of the guys in those classes were were just uh, just incredible this one guy just i remember you know he's like so here's my composition he plays his composition it was like a legit awesome song and i was like how in the world because mine was like 
Yeah. You know, it was just kind of wispy and weird and like atonal and not interesting. Yeah. It just sort of was an evolving mess of background noise, you know. Uh-huh. But I, but it was amazing that I pulled that off. And oh, yeah. This guy sitting right next to me. Anyway, my point is, is that I believe that in the jazz school, they actually do have that philosophy where it's just like you have to put in your time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. Like they they will talk to a young improviser and they're like, you're still thinking too much. Yeah. You still have – you got to play more. Yeah. You know, you have to – and and it, it doesn't mean you have to improvise more. You actually have to play uh, actual music. You know, you have to follow the the, the music. Um, you're still in that phase. Yeah. You know, you're still in those first five years as a therapist. Right. You know? Anyway, uh, let's take a break. And when we come back, let's continue with this article. What do you say, Bob? Sure. All right, we're back from the break. I have a number of different things here on a piece of paper that I am going to announce here. Uh, become a patron at patreon.com. That's the way we know that you appreciate this podcast. And for every person that becomes a patron, it, it gives us funds so that we can actually allocate time. Bob is now a paid member of Psychology in Seattle. Am I? I thought Colleen was. <laughs> and you uh, would do it for free anyway, as you said. But it's nice to get, you know... Oh, 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 a paid member. I thought you meant patron. Sorry. Oh, yeah. yeah. Your wife is a patron Sorry. of the podcast. I blanked. Uh, but you get paid to uh, podcast. I know. Yeah, and so do I. And if we didn't get paid, uh, we wouldn't be able to spend as much time on it, um, particularly me, because uh, it's very time-consuming. So uh, become a patron. Also, email us if you have trouble with any of the technology stuff contact at psychology in seattle.com every day there's someone emails me and it's like i can't access the premium feed in this way and i i can help buy my book multi-role clinical supervision that Uh, is a good book folks thanks every month there's about you know two or three people who buy my book all right so it's just it's always gratifying to know someone out there is being subjective to my uh to my words bravo uh like our facebook page and play our tuesday tougher bluff game I'm getting more into the Facebook page because I'm posting polls and pictures. And like I just posted a picture of um, uh, it was Umberto's birthday and I gave him a gift. And so it's just kind of fun to if you're a Facebooker. We're also going to start getting more into Instagram and Twitter. Uh, it's not really up and running fully yet, but uh, so you can follow us there, too. You can also join the Facebook fan group. Uh, I never go there. It's just for fans, everyone except for me. It's, I just want a place where people can just share and talk amongst themselves. Bitch about you. Yeah, which happens. And occasionally, like, someone will come to me and be like, did you see what someone posted on the fan page? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the point, you know? It's like, if, it, <laughs> if you come to me with it, then people will, they won't post stuff like no. that. You know? Yeah. Anyway, uh, also know that, it, if you're not on the website, you're on, you only have access to recent episodes. So if you're on your phone and you're scrolling down through all the episodes, and it only goes back one or two years, we've had we've been making episodes for ten years, and some of our best episodes are were made more than one or two years ago. And so if you want to get those older episodes, you have to go to the website at this point. We're actually working on other solutions, but do that. Do you ever rate them? Uh, rate the yeah. Episodes? Like let's say, I mean, you have what. 700 episodes? Uh, 850, I think. 850. 
So 850 is a lot of choices. Yeah. Do you ever like, this one's a four-star one? That's interesting. Um, well, so we sent out a survey to all the listeners. Yeah. Asking them what their favorite episodes were. Right. So it just said, it's just an open field, just like, what's your favorite episode? Cool. And I thought that it would, there certain themes would emerge, you know, like, or like I listen to podcasts sometimes and they'll do a poll and they'll be like, you know, identify your favorite episode of this last year. And you, and for some podcasts, it's kind of hard to remember. And so you just sort of pick the one you remember, sure. like a notable one, right. something with something novel that happened in it. Right. So I thought that would happen. But what actually happened was there were a couple uh, episodes that tended to be identified more than others, but almost everyone gave a unique response to that. Wow. They were like, in fact, one of the themes was our uh, episode, You and Me, in which we talked about complex PTSD and borderline. Oh, I remember that day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that one, the narcissistic personality sort of deep dive, I think the suicide deep dive also got a lot of mentions, but those are recent deep dives. So I'm thinking that's why they have identified those, but yeah, you know, there were 150 other responses of unique responses. Yeah. You know, this episode, that episode, you know, OJ Simpson, Amanda Knox. That's pretty cool. Uh, this particular episode about borderline or this particular episode about parenting or something. And so that's my response to your question of huh. just like, you know, are there yeah. higher rated? I, I, I think it's it's sort of personal. To people, yeah, right. Got know. it. Um, also, if you become a $20 patron, you get a mug. And if you don't live in the United States, I sort of wait a while to send it because it's more expensive to send it overseas. Um, and, and if you become a $20 patron, make sure that your address is correct on, on Patreon because that's the address I send it to. Somebody going to get your mug. Yeah. Because that happens sometimes. I just send the mug, and they're like, I never got the mug. And I'm like, do you live at this address? They're like, no, that's a that's an old address or something. <laughs> also, if you're an employer and you're looking to start ZipRecruiter, you know, you, you want to become – you want to uh, sign up with ZipRecruiter because it's a helpful way of hiring people. Um, if you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash psychology in Seattle and then you sign up, we get actually a kickback quite substantial kickback from them when you sign up. Cause I think it's expensive for employers just to sign up. Really? Yeah. Huh? Also, if you become a $50 patron, we, I, I will provide you with personal consulting. Really? Uh, occasionally. Yeah. Um, at least once. So if you're interested in a personal consultation, become a $50 patron. What do I consult with you about? Should I be such a patron? Uh, anything you want. Okay. Uh, it can't be therapy. I, I mean, I can't provide therapy. Yeah, right. Uh, or won't. But it, uh, it could be. You know, people have listeners have hired me, and incidentally, I'm guessing Bob's available for consultation too. If if you wanted to provide it, right? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, well, we could talk about it. Yeah. Like, for example, someone will just want to know more about borderline. Oh. And so they call, and you know, we go back and forth over the phone, and. It's essentially an education consultation right. talk, or you know, oh, or a clinician is going through a complaint process. Right, they're being sued for this or that, and they want some consultation about that. That's a you know pretty good use of of consultation dollars. You know, get right. some expert opinion or some other opinions or some direction or how to how to process it. I've been through a, a, a lot of those kinds of situations, and so I want to help in that way. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, would you provide that kind of stuff if someone? I don't know anything about that sort of thing. 
um, you know, if DBT, for example, so I could talk about DBT. Yeah. Yeah. I could do that. I could talk about couple counseling. Yeah. Um, EFT. I could talk about EFT. Yeah. 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 Cause you're a certified EFT therapist. Yeah. Newly for, uh, one month and three days. Yeah. So I have like 20 articles to go through with you and we've only, it's been half the episode. We've only gone through like part of one, part of one. <laughs> well, uh, we're either going to step on the gas or we're going to bore people. I'm going to step on the gas. So number five here, and this is the fifth bad listening practice, which is they don't respond at all. And that's pretty obvious. Oh yeah. That's um, terrible. Yeah. So next article that I found after Googling psychotherapy on Google news today is this article that talks about this app called Wobot, which Wobot. is a phone app that is designed to be an, it's called an online robot therapist. Huh? Yeah. How did, Wobot like, whoa, like, whoa is me? Yeah. <laughs> oh God, that's terrible. Right? <laughs> that's so bad. Like <laughs> it, it, it plays into this stereotype that uh-huh. clients are, whoa is me. Yeah. And what, what are you whining about? Is that what it says? It's like, you're whining. <laughs> no. Jesus. Um, but it's, well, so this article, this is not Wobot people. This is someone else writing about it. Okay. Uh, but it says, are you sweating and fretting with no one to talk to? If you do not have the time or money for a psychotherapist, and those are two words, psychotherapist. I don't huh. know. Um, there is a new alternative. Wobot is an online robot therapist that chats and reflects with you. No couches, no meds, no childhood stuff, just clinically tested techniques and the occasional dorky joke. So uh, I actually downloaded the app on my phone this morning. Oh, I feel like I want to do it right now. Yeah. And I, I went through it. So, you know, when you're going through this, you're, you're, like, you're like, oh, you know, an online therapist, like, like an AI, yeah. right? Uh, and, but I was like, I'm really curious what this is one two if uh, we have not come up with we have not come up with good enough ai uh yet for i mean you can have quote-unquote ai that can kind of trick people under certain circumstances yeah but you know the the turing Turing test test, yeah. yeah but it's we are very far from having you know a relationship with another uh, with another being and yeah. having it be an AI. And so so I was like, this is going to be really clunky. But here's the thing. So so you have to sign up, and um, they walk you through a bunch of uh, disclaimers right off the bat. So it, it uh-huh. looks, if you look at it, it looks like a chat. It's like I say something, they say something, uh-huh. I say something, oh, Wobot gotcha. says something. But here's the thing. So... Um, so in the you know they they give you all these uh, so so for example they would say uh, okay let's get started uh, how are you feeling right now uh-huh. so it asks you that question and then it gives you a bunch of options oh wow. so it's multiple choice forced, forced choice so you can't just say well da 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 so you know you pick your emotional emoticon and uh-huh. it's sort of cutesy like there's these emoticons and stuff. Mm. And then it's like, okay, I got it. Uh, you just completed your first check-in, and then it gives you multiple responses to that one too. Like it, 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 it forces you to pick certain responses. There's, 
there's rarely a point when you can just type whatever you want to type. It sounds like one of those uh, pick your own adventure books. Kind of. Yeah. It is. It's it's the at least the decision tree in the in right. the app is like that. So, for example, you know, they would say, you just completed your first check-in. And then you can either say, okay, or you can say, what's a check-in? You know what I mean? Like, that's usually the binary there. And a lot of the – and then the next next thing Wobot says is, as I get to know you better through these daily check-ins, we'll work together to uncover patterns in your mood. And then the two choices were something like, um, tell me more or cool, exclamation point. So there's not like – there's no option to say like this is dumb or I don't want you to ch-. you know it's, there's it locks you into either this super positive response or like a questioning response yeah. for more information. Right. It and so if you don't want more information it forces you to like pick these enthusiastic responses which I found to be actually kind of initially annoying but over mm-hmm. time it it actually started to make me more positive about the app. I could I could tell it was like oh trippy because it's forcing you to say these really enthusiastic things you know and I, over time it just kind of felt good to be enthusiastic at the moment or something that's you know? fascinating so I don't know if that's part of their thing but um, so what this Wobot apparently does so it I can tell it has a few functions one is is it it checks in with your mood a couple times a day. And, you know, I'm guessing, because I just installed this, I'm guessing, like, tomorrow I'll get this notification, like, hey, what, you know, check in with Wobot. What's your mood right now? And then it also uh, just kind of has a, a quirky way of responding. It's cutesy, you know? And then it, it it will, it tried to send me to the CBT YouTube video. It was like, do you want to watch a video on how to manage your feelings? And so... It's not Wobot telling me this. It's just it's just directing me to a video, and I'm guessing it it directs everyone to that video. Yeah, you know right. I mean, regardless of what you say, right? Um, and and so there's that. And then at a certain point, it asks me, "Can you take a minute to tell me what what got you feeling this way?" So it's not asking me like a, so. I you know, it's just asking like elaborate. And this is the first time I'm able to just type in whatever I want. And this is like several back and forths, you know. Uh-huh. And so I, I respond, you know, I'm just like, well, I'm a little tired this morning because I woke up late or something. And then, uh, and then it's just like, oh, you know, being tired, you know, that's that that's awful. It feels. I hope you feel better soon. And then it locks you into a response of just like um, two enthusiastic positive responses to choose from. You know, like uh-huh. thanks or that's nice of you. Like you have to, you, it forces you. To, so if you just looked at this 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 back and forth, you'd be like, wow. This user really enjoys this process, but it's because it's forcing you to, to say certain things. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and then it, it, it uh, but there's a couple of funny moments, like, like it's like, um, uh, it, it, so then it starts walking you through some CBT stuff, like they're, you know, they're saying, um, you if you know if you think about the language that you use it actually will affect your mood you know so it it says like um <laughs> there's the uh there's a like a printer it talks about a printer named Jill like so there's this printer like a actual xerox printer machine named Jill wow and it's always broken uh what's you know and it's very frustrating. And then it has a scene from, uh, from 
what's that movie? Office, Office Space? Space. Yeah, where they're really angry at that printer. At the printer, yeah. yeah. And and it's you know you can see it right here. It's just this it's this gif, and it's and it's funny, you know. And when that popped up, it was just kind of like oh, it's kind of you know it's just cutesy. Uh-huh. And then it walks through. It's like you know what word should be omitted here? You know, I think she would be much more productive if people didn't keep telling her that she was always failing. You know what I mean? It's like what word is wrong there? It's like well, the word always, always, of course. And so you say always, and then it's like good job, you did it. And then it gives you this gif of uh, of. Noah, uh, Trevor guy, Noah, Trevor Noah, is saying yay, you know, and so it, it it's like teaching you how to do self talk, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, it's not mind blowing, but honestly, it, I think because I was really trying to hand myself over to this process. Sure, I you know it it got under my skin a little bit. It was a it was a nice little reminder to think about the self talk that I do. You know, it, and it does it in this entertaining way. Yeah, yeah, like I if so. I just saw a tip online, like, you know, watch the language in your own mind about the things you say to yourself. Right, that's different. Yeah, but this, if if you hand yourself over to Wobot, you know, it can help with your woes. What do you think, Bob? Well, that's interesting. I don't think it's therapy, but I do think it's an interesting kind of coaching. And it doesn't engage just your cognitive mind. Like you're reading an article about positive thinking is probably not going to have that big an impact on you. Even if you find it compelling or interesting, if facts and logic did it, it would have done it. That thing. I don't think of it as therapy, but I do think of it as if I'm hearing you right, like um, an effective way to train you to do a new, forgive the word skill. Right. And it's, uh, for some people, I'm guessing, yeah. could be really quite amazing yeah. if they hadn't been exposed to such things. Yeah. I imagine also the checking in on your mood, I'm guessing over time, they might actually start telling you the, uh, different trends you've had. Right. And maybe there's some script in there around like, you know, you seem to be in a good mood in these past few days. Like, right. why do you think that is? Is there something different about the way that you're thinking, mm-hmm. you know? It coaches, uh, it could co- coach self-reflection. Yeah. Yeah. So I've seen other products like this, and I feel like this one is, you know, doing a better job mm-hmm. than other ones. Um, but the way that, you're, you know, this reporting, like, uh, you know, if you don't have time or money for a psychotherapist, there's a new alternative. Yeah. And it's like, um, yeah. Well. well, so if you are uh, interested or... You know, if your alternative is a is a cognitive behavioral therapist <laughs> who is very skills based, then I would say yeah, you know. Yeah. But um, but there are so many other uses of therapy that are more relational and yeah, correction correction corrective emotional experiences and yeah, um, that people need to heal and you know blah blah blah. Right. Anyway, other article here. Uh, you know, it's January, so people... Oh, actually, this might get posted in February. I'm not sure, but uh, lots of people making New Year's resolutions. And so this uh, psychotherapist wrote an article, Julia Hogan. She It looks like she's a, a licensed clinical professional counselor somewhere. Mm-hmm. And she has a number of tips about how to, how to make your resolutions. Did you huh. make a resolution this year? No, I don't do that. Yeah. I feel like... When I was younger, I would make resolutions, and then eventually I'm like, well, shouldn't I be making resolutions all the time? Like, if I, if I want to do something, 
shouldn't I be always thinking about that? Why would I only think about that once a year? You know, New Year, I guess it sort of has that kind of, now it's got that link, that sort of cultural link. Yeah. But, eh. Yeah. Plus, I've failed at so many resolutions. Yeah. Do we need another article on how to keep them? Nobody keeps them. Right. <laughs> why, don't, why doesn't somebody write that? You know, nobody keeps these. Yeah. Yeah, they just have an article like, don't make resolutions. You're just beating yourself up. You're just setting yourself up for failure. If you aren't doing it already, yeah. then a resolution isn't going to push you over the edge. Right. You know what I mean? But I anyway. I just thought yesterday about procrastination. Procrastination is that thing that you do when you're uncomfortable with the fact that you're avoiding the shit out of something. Right. You just, and you don't want to do it. You don't want to do it. Yeah. So you just tell yourself, well, I'll do it later, which helps you get out of the discomfort of the fact that you're not doing the thing that you don't want to do. But you're probably not going to do it later either. That's procrastination. Because you actually don't want to do it. Yeah. I said that to a client yesterday. He did not like it. Yeah. I find that it's a hard sell that to tell people. So, you know, they'll be talking with me as clients and and they'll be like, you know, so I I just really need to get off my ass and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, you know. I'll entertain that for a bit. And then eventually I'll just be like, you know, what's the chance that most of you doesn't want to do this? Yeah, and, right. And you're denying that. Right. And they'll be like, what? No, I, I want to. Yeah. And <laughs> and the other day I was actually having a conversation with a client like this about this. And I gave this, sometimes I give this analogy. Um, I play guitar. Yeah. And you can see my guitar right there. I do. It's, it's very close to my uh, desk. And it's purposely there because I want to just, there are times when I just turn around, grab it, and just kind of futz around on it, you know, and play a song. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing that since I was 16 or 17 when I first, when I first discovered that I liked to play guitar, you know, mm-hmm. or in the, when I first got a guitar. In fact, the very first guitar that I quote-unquote played was a guitar that I think had been handed down to us through the generations from like an uncle or something, and it had one string. Wow. One string, it, like just the E string, just the biggest string. The How many chords string. could you play? Uh, you can't. <laughs> and so, but I played the shit out of that thing. No shit. Yeah. That's cool. I wrote, you know, melodies essentially. Yeah. And, you know, liked the feeling of, you know, hitting that string. And did you get a, a, a callus on one finger? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I uh, eventually, you know, actually got a shitty acoustic guitar and started playing that all the time. Never took lessons. No one ever told me to do it. I never said, oh, I should practice more mm-hmm. guitar. It was just a thing I did. Yeah. And as I started uh, playing more and people started watching me get better, they're like, oh, I always wanted to play guitar. And I'd be like, oh, you know, and I'd look at them and I'd be like, it's easy. You just, uh, you know, get a guitar and start playing. And, you know, it's, let me show you and let's, let's get you a guitar and, and let's, I'll show you some chords and, you know, and you're off and running. I check in with him. Um, actually, one of our friends was like this, Todd, remember? Like, uh, I didn't know Todd got into guitar or, well, or talked about it. Yeah, I, I gave him one of my guitars. Really? I gave him my uh, Sky Blue uh, Squire guitar. Is that an electric guitar? Yeah. I gave him one of my... Because this is, this, really? this is me in the past of just like... Um, I mean, I didn't give it to him like forever, but, yeah. I, but I gave it to him and never got it back uh-huh, yeah, and right. didn't really need it back. Well, right. But at least... That's my memory. But anyway, yeah, I, I, I was always, because I want, you know, people would say, because they'd look at yeah. me and they'd be like, oh, I want, and I'd want to help that. Because I kind of had people helping me back in the day. Sure. Um, it, but almost 95, maybe more percent of the time, what I would find is 
I would check in with them six months, 12 months later, and they'd be like, oh, I, yeah, I got to practice more. And I would look at them and I'd be like, no one ever had to tell me to practice. And there was never a point where yeah. I beat myself up about not practicing. Right. Because I just loved doing you it. You like doing it. I wanted to do it, and I did it. Yeah. And so I started realizing, and I would ask people, I was just like, well, maybe you don't really want to play guitar. And they're like, what do you mean? I love, I really want to play. I yeah. love playing guitar. I really yeah. want to do it. And I'd be like, well, when's the last time you just were compelled and actually just picked up a guitar right. and started playing? And they're like, oh, man, you know, I've been busy lately. Right. And, I, and I'm like, you don't really want to do it. Yeah. Like, if you really want, like, if you have, if you're going through chemo or something, I understand. But if you're just living your regular life, um, you know, when you want to do something, you'll make it happen. Yeah. Even if it's just 30 seconds. He that's, might want to want to. That's what I tell people. It's yeah. like, you, you you want to want to. Yeah. You really want to right. want to, but you actually don't want to. Right. Um, or there's a bigger part of your brain that doesn't want to do X, Y, or Z. Yeah. That you are in denial of or don't feel like it's valid or you're you're just not used to acknowledging that side of yourself. And once you connect with them, and, and I think for some people, like the person you were talking to, it's really quite threatening to them because they're just like, so what, I'm just supposed to give up? Or what else does this mean that I don't want to do? Am I just going to sit, if I just, if I just acknowledge that I don't want to do things, mm -hmm. then I'm just going to sit at home staring at the wall and I'm not going to be productive at all. And actually the opposite is true. Once you connect with who, who you are and what you want there's a greater chance you're actually going to connect with the flow of your life that actually becomes, you know, none of us are doing things we want to do all the time. Like I don't want to do laundry. You know what I mean? Like I'm yeah. not, I'm not dying to do laundry, yeah. but because I'm in the flow of in connection with what I want to do overall, like I, it doesn't trip me up to do my laundry. Right. You have bandwidth for the have tos. Right. Because there's enough want to. Cause I'm getting enough of my needs met. That's right. interesting. I don't think I've ever thought of it that way. Yeah. Like, for people who are, uh, you know, significantly and habitually and chronically not, for one reason or another, meeting their needs and not actually, you know, doing a lot of things that they feel like they should, that they don't really want to do, not doing the things they really want to do, when it comes to a thing that is easily discountable and procrastinated like laundry or whatever, then it's just like the straw that breaks the camel's back and they're like, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whereas people who get their needs met they're like yeah i mean yeah. i can do the laundry it's not a right know, not a big deal this person that i was talking to was discovering that he was procrastinating about something that's um not doing is against his values and so he hit this really painful spot where he had to recognize i'm not doing the thing that is actually it's actually really important to me and it wasn't like a pick play guitar it had something to do with his marriage and um felt bad about its impact on his partner. And, um, you know, you could get into this attitude of, I'm going to nail you about your procrastination. But what we did, uh, and I think it was painful and effective, was um, validate you're acting outside your values and you don't want to. You don't want to do this thing. You want to want to do this thing and not doing it is outside your values. And so you're in this very painful spot and the procrastination is actually a way to help yourself deal with the pain of I'm not doing the thing that I, I really believe I need to do or that I need to do right by my partner. Yeah. So uh, that poor fellow, he left my office in quite a bit of pain. 
but I think was in touch with bad news is you're the deliverer of bad news. But I think he was connecting with something, uh, essential for both his welfare and also the welfare of his partner. Yeah. Makes sense. Yuck. I mean, you know, what are you going to do? But wow. Ouch. Yeah. It's very painful. It's for some reason, it's easier for people to accept that they're being lazy or that they lack willpower. Right. I know it's kind of yucky actually, when you think about it, lazy is really yucky. Right. It's harder to acknowledge that a big part of them doesn't want to doesn't do it. Doesn't want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And and chances are, if I don't want to do it, I've come by that for a very good, damn good reason. Right. Yeah. And what I tell people, because I, I feel like I've had a lot of conversations like this with clients, uh, particularly teenage clients, actually, because teenage clients would come to me and say, like, I, am, I need to do better at school. Yeah, right. You know? And I'll be like, is there a chance you don't want to do better at school? <laughs> You know, because cause they'll, they'll say, oh, I come home and I play video games or, you know, I just, I don't know, I just don't feel like doing, or I need to be better about doing my homework. And I'm like, that's fine if you want to. Yeah. But, and they're experiencing significant stress and their parents are upset because the sure. kids are saying one thing but doing another. Right. And then I'll just say to the kid, I'll just be like, is there a chance that you don't really care about school? <laughs> like, it's fine. <laughs> and, but, and when I, and then eventually I say like, I'm not saying you should not do well in school. No, it might not, be important. Right. I'm not saying you should not do the laundry. Yeah. What I'm saying is that when you deny an aspect and don't give voice to a certain aspect of yourself, then, right. it, then it becomes stronger. Yes, it becomes stronger. And more stubborn because it's trying to be heard. Yeah, that's stuck. Yeah, you could just be like, oh yeah, I think I do hate school. Yeah. And I think I, I'm not that interested in getting straight A's. Maybe I'm interested in getting B's. You know, maybe that's, maybe that's what I'm looking for. Maybe that's the balance, you know? Right. But for the person who considers themselves to be a straight A student, that's a really hard pill to swallow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pill one. I had a client like that, a teenage client for a a couple of years where this was like one of the main things that we talked about. Right. And it was very hard for him to adjust to that idea because he was kind of narcissistic and he thought of himself as like a genius, someone who, you know, should excel in the school right. and have the marks to prove it. And, and at the same time, due to a lot of emotional re- sure. things, he wasn't actually willing to put in the time and effort. Yeah. And so what it resulted in was either him flunking a class because right. he's just giving up and, you know, cause he's, he, it's like, well, I flunked on purpose, you know what I mean? Um, or just lots of conflict with him and his parents, you know, cause the parents are just like, why are you getting a D in this class? You're smarter than this. And it's just like, because he doesn't want, he, he's capable lots, you know, I'm capable of things that I don't do. Yeah. You know, I'm capable of being a vegan who doesn't drive cars and doesn't use electricity and never checks social media and runs 10 miles a day (laughs) and, you know, gives all my money to charity charity and, you know, lives off of the land and, you know, I'm capable of those things, Yeah, but I don't do those things because I don't want to. You don't want to. That's just the facts. (laughs) God, that's depressing in and of itself. Let's go. Oh, just accept yourself. Let's get off that topic. (laughs) Let it go, Kirk. Yeah. Let it go. (laughs) Let it go. Uh, But just going over her recommendations here, simply make a resolution, she says. Okay, fine. Mm. Believe in yourself. Okay. Yeah. Stay true to you. Uh, what does that you know, mean? What's, the, what's your motivation for making your resolution? Are you choosing something that's meaningful to you, or are you just going through the motions? It's kind of uh-huh. what we've been saying so far. Yeah. 
Don't bite off more than you can chew. That's a big one. That's a biggie. That's a big one. You know, people will say, I'm going to lose 50 pounds. 50 pounds. And it's like, how about two pounds? Yeah. How about you lose two pounds? You yeah. Know, just, and just see and how... And on your way to losing two, just lose one. Yeah. And, and just see how good that feels. Yeah. Um, and then their last thing here is add, don't subtract, meaning like, uh, you know, instead of saying, I'm going to not drink or I'm going to not yeah. eat this or that, how about adding something like, I'm going to I'm gonna go hiking more, I don't know, something else. Huh. Well, well that does it for that episode. Will this episode. be ed- edited? <laughs> <laughs> A psychology in Seattle, thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because... You deserve it. it.